I always like to remind people that the study of God's Word in itself is an act of worship. It's not some dry academic approach to the Word of God, but God has revealed Himself. He has given us this revelation in writing. He has preserved this revelation for centuries. We still have it. Because we have it in writing, we can study it. We can know it hasn't changed. And we can also validate the fact that it is absolute truth. It is veracity. And when we study the Word of God, we acknowledge that this is God's revelation. He's the sovereign. He has the right to rule over us. It's His plan. And therefore, it is incumbent upon the believer to study this Word because in so doing, we are bowing before God and saying, you tell us, you lead us. So as we come to our study of the Word of God, once again, let us pray. We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, that we have this revelation in writing. We can each have his own copy in his own language. We know that this is grace. And we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to give us spiritual understanding. I pray that this day, as we look into your word together, that your spirit will guide us into truth, that we might have a better understanding of your grace, your plan, your perfect provision for us. And I pray that we might learn these things so that we can conform ourselves to your thinking, and that we might fulfill the purpose that you have for us in this life, and thus bring you glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we began looking at this passage in Romans chapter 3. It's a passage that is quite familiar to many believers and yet I think it's one that often has not been looked at in great depth, partly because we are familiar with it. But I think also what has come up over many years is a, uh, a familiarity with it that uh, breeds contempt, if you will, because we, uh, we think we know what it's saying. But oftentimes uh, I think that we have overlooked some very important details uh, as regard to a clear understanding of it. And so uh, we saw last time that the expression or the verse we all know so well, Romans 3.23, for all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sinned, aorist tense in the Greek, which indicates this is something that happened in the past. It was a completed action in the past. It's the same expression found in Romans 5.12 where it says, By one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death passed upon all men, that's spiritual death, because all sinned. All sinned when Adam sinned. We are all born in Adam. And because we are in Adam, therefore we are born sinners. Paul goes on in Romans 5 to to say that it's through one man's disobedience that we were made sinners. How did you become a sinner? When you told your first lie? Or the first time you rebelled against your parents? No, you became a sinner because you are in Adam. 
So when Adam sinned, we all sinned because we were all in Adam, and it was through his sin that we became sinners, and that's why we do sin is because we were born that way. So in Romans 3.23, it says, all sinned. We've all sinned in the past. Of course, we know that is true from our personal experience, but beyond that, we all sinned when Adam sinned. But then he goes on to say, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when he says fall short, that's a present tense, which indicates this is an ongoing process. It doesn't say all sinned in the past and all fell short in the past. No, it's saying all sinned in the past, probably in our position in Adam, but we continue to fall short of the glory of God. Today, you fall short of the glory of God. But now, we come to verse 24, which says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, how does verse 24 relate to verse 23? That's a huge question. Most commentators, when you read it, they say, oh, well, verse 22, verse 23 doesn't uh, uh, really relate to verse 24. You have to go back earlier. And that verses 22 and 23 are actually a parenthesis. But I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here at all. But rather, the all who sinned are also the all who believe, in verse 22, that there is a righteousness that comes from the source of God, which is to all who believe. It is on all who believe. Now, in verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace. Martin Luther came up with a phrase that says, simul justus et peccator. That's Latin. And what it means is, at the same time, simultaneously, you are justified and you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. No question about that. And yet, at the same time, I have been declared righteous. We've all sinned. We are all falling short of the grace of God. And yet at the same time, we are being justified. And so we could translate uh, this verse here as all sinned and are falling short of the glory of God, though being justified freely by His grace or while we are being justified freely by His grace. But we understand that, yes, we are falling short daily, and yet at the same time there is this wonderful truth that God has provided this absolutely perfect salvation. And once we have been declared righteous by God, nothing can undo that. There is nothing that will change that declaration by God. Now, whom does God justify? Well, in Romans 4, 5, it says that he justifies the ungodly. It's not that he is justifying the good guys, the perfect people, or those that who are really trying hard. He justifies the ungodly. God knows what we are. He knows 
how we live, how we think. He knows that we are totally corrupt in our sinful nature, and yet he declares us to be righteous on the basis of uh, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we put faith in Christ. God gives us his righteousness as a free gift, and on that basis he declares us to be righteous. And so being justified... Now, justified does not mean justified never sinned. There is a uh, a teaching that says, well, when you put faith in Christ, God just makes you as if you'd never sinned. And their idea is that you start with a clean slate. You start all over. Well, when you put faith in Christ, it's true that you have the forgiveness of sins, but you still have a sinful nature. And it's not that you're starting all over with a, with a clean slate and, and now we're going to start counting uh, new sins from the day of your salvation. That's not it. Rather, we have the fact that we are born into the family of God. And from that moment, we have a new responsibility and we have a new standing before God. But it hasn't changed your inner life. Justification is not a change that God makes in you. That is a false teaching. That somehow God reaches in at at the point of your faith in Christ and turns a switch, and now you always have a desire to please God. Well, who would say that if they're honest? Do you always do the things of God? Or do you sometimes struggle with your sin nature. Of course we do. So if if justification meant that God has changed us as far as our thinking and our actions uh, are concerned, we'd have to say he didn't do a very good job, at least with me, because I'm still struggling. So the justification is not a change that God makes in the believer as far as how you think and how you act, but rather it is a declaration that God makes. It is a legal, forensic term in which a declaration is made. God declares us to be righteous. Now, we don't have time to uh, go into it today, but the topic is found in Romans chapter 4 where we have what is known as imputation. Imputation means to credit something to someone's account. God sees your faith in Jesus Christ, and at that moment, he credits to your account righteousness. So when he sees your faith in Christ, he doesn't write down faith on your ledger sheet. Rather, he writes down righteousness. He imputes it to us. He gives it to us. Philippians 3.9 declares that we have faith or we have righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 declares that righteousness is a gift. God gives it to you. You don't have to gin up your own righteousness in order to get into heaven. But rather God gives you his righteousness as a free gift. And so justification is a legal 
declaration by God when he sees the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to the account of the believer. So justification stands over against condemnation. Because we have been justified, there is no condemnation. So justification is a matter of imputation where the righteousness of Christ is credited to you and then God says, oh, you are righteous. And that's a true statement because he has given his righteousness. So being justified in this verse means although being justified, we're falling short of the glory of God, although being justified. So justification means to vindicate, to acquit, to declare free from a penalty, or to declare righteous. So understand it is a judicial legal act of God. It's not an action that he takes to change your inner life. But in justification, when he makes that declaration, he's saying all the demands of divine justice have been satisfied with regard to you. They've been satisfied because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. So justification is the recognition by God that the believer in Jesus has his perfect righteousness. And on that basis, God makes the declaration that we are free from the penalty for sin. And this applies to all sins, past, present, future. It includes the removal of every penalty for sin so that we will not come into judgment. John 5.24 says, You put faith in Christ for salvation, you will not come into judgment. Or Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So all of the penalty for sin has been taken care of, and we are free from every condemnation that could be brought against us because God has declared us to be righteous. So the word justified never means to make you righteous or holy, but to declare righteous. So justification is not a change God makes in us. I can't emphasize that too much. There are so many people who have been so confused over this teaching, and they, they, they think that if I've been saved, then, then I'm not going to sin any longer. Well, that's not right. Or they'll come to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is not talking about your experience. That's talking about your position in Christ. What are the old things that have passed away? Well, that's your condemnation. That's your position in Adam. That's your spiritual death. Those things have all passed away. What are the new things that have come? Well, now I have spiritual life in Christ. Now I'm a child of God. Now I have this new standing before God. These are the new things that have come. I have eternal life, and I have righteousness. So these are the new things that have come. That's not my experience, but rather it's something that God has applied to the believer. So justification 
It doesn't make you holy. But it is a declaration that our relationship with God has been changed. So God declares righteous the ungodly man who ceases from all his works and believes in Christ. So to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to his account for righteousness. That's Romans 4, 5. All right, now he says, being justified freely by his grace. The word freely comes from the root word for a gift. It means that which is given as a gift, it is given without payment on the part of the recipient. So when it says freely, it means you get this as a gift, being justified as a gift. So it's without cost to you. Now, people talk about cheap grace, and I, I've got to admit that that expression makes me angry. Okay. Cheap grace. Grace is not cheap. Grace was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not something cheap. So we receive a gift, and that gift is very, very costly. But I don't pay for it. I don't contribute anything to it. I simply receive it by faith. So we are declared righteous as a gift, gratis, without payment. And then, to express this even more fully, it's by His grace. Grace is receiving from God what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, what we don't work for. Grace is all that God is free to give to man on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's what God is able to give to us because of what Jesus did. And we need to understand that there are many things that God cannot do apart from the cross. God cannot save apart from the cross. God's love cannot save anyone. If God's love could save, then there's no need for the cross. But God did love us, but he had to do something in order to be able to express that love to the human race. God can't simply say, oh, I love you so much, come into my heaven. He can't do that. If he could, everyone would be saved. But God loved the world in this way that he gave his son. That was necessary. And Paul is going to explain very explicitly in this passage why that was necessary. So we have been justified as a gift. It's by His grace. And His grace comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption. Well, that's one of those Bible words, and we know somehow it's connected with salvation, but oftentimes we're a little fuzzy as to just the precise meaning of these words. What is redemption? Redemption looks at the human race as being born into slavery. We are all born into the slave market of sin. Jesus spoke in John 8. He said, you are the slaves of sin. We are born into this slave market. All of us 
are born into the slave market because we are all in Adam, and we have Adam's sin, which is imputed to us, and we have Adam's sin nature, which we inherited, and so we are born into this slave market of sin. Now, a a sin in the slave market has no resources. He can't buy his own freedom. He can't work out his freedom. He can't say, oh, look, I'll work, and I'll work very hard, and you set me free. It doesn't work that way. A slave cannot buy his own freedom. Only a free man can purchase a slave. So you're going to have to have someone who is born outside of the slave market. But no one is born outside of the slave market. We're all born slaves to sin. But God, in his grace, found a way to solve this problem, and this he did by sending Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus is not born in the slave market of sin because he's born of a virgin, and therefore he does not have the imputation of Adam's sin. He does not have a sinful nature. He is born as a free man outside of the slave market. But the fact that he's a free man doesn't set anybody free. There must also be the payment of a price, This price is called the ransom. Ransom is the price that is paid to set someone free. It might be somebody who is in the slave market. Sometimes the word was used for a prisoner of war who is going to be set free upon the payment of a price. Sometimes this was used for the uh, victim of a kidnap so that uh, someone is kidnapped and the kidnappers say, Uh, Give us $5 million, and we will set free uh, the prisoner. So that price that's paid to secure the release of a prisoner is called the ransom. It's related to redemption. So the fact that the price was paid does not set anybody free. In order to get out of the slave market, a person has to go through the door. So the price was paid, the door is open, and anyone is free to exit, but each individual must exercise his own volition and go through the door. Well, what is the door? Jesus said, I am the door. You want to get out of the slave market of sin, you have to go out the door, but that means you're going to have to go through Jesus Christ. So uh, only by faith in Jesus Christ can you be set free from that slave market of sin. Now, in in the New Testament, there are actually eight different words found in the Greek text that are related to redemption. Let me take a big sigh of relief here. I'm not going to go through those eight words with you. But what I will tell you is that they fall into three categories. There are three aspects in view in redemption and the context and the use of these different words tell you which one is in view. First, there is a group of words that talk about the payment of price. And this has nothing to do with the release from the slave market. It doesn't have anything to do with liberation. It's just the payment of the price. There are uh, another 
group of words that means release from bondage. It's not talking about the payment of the price. It's talking about the actual liberation. And then there's a third group of words that means release from bondage after the price has been paid. So it, it combines the first two ideas. So the payment of a price. Uh, ransom or bought at a price. Uh, the Bible indicates that Jesus paid the price for the entire human race, even for those who deny him, even for those who reject him as Savior. Jesus paid the price, which means salvation is available for the entire human race because he paid for all. And so uh, we find verses such as 2 Peter 2.1, which says there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who redeemed them. Is this saying these people are saved? No. It's saying that Jesus paid the price. And so we have this Greek word here. It's talking about the payment of the price. It's not talking about liberation at all. But it's saying that Jesus did redeem the entire human race in the sense that he paid the price for all in the slave market. So redemption, that's payment of the price, or ransom. Uh, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the payment of the price. He gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2.6. Does that mean all are saved? No, it means that the price was paid for all. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price. You see, all of these, they're just emphasizing the payment of that price. But now there's a second group of words that means release from bondage. And that would be our verse here in Romans 3.24, uh, in whom we have redemption. And the word here means liberation. We have redemption, liberation, release from bondage. So in Ephesians 1.7, in Him, in Christ, we have liberation through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Or our verse, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then we have the word redemption, a different group of words that means liberation after the payment of the price. For example, in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your empty manner of life received by tradition from your fathers. So here we, we have release because the price was paid. So you have both uh, the first and second concepts in view here. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. He's going to set us free because he has paid the price. All right, being justified freely through his grace, through the redemption. What is that? It's being set free because a price was paid, but here the emphasis is on that liberation. 
We go out of that slave market. And it's because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the redemption is the means that God used to bring the gift of justification to human beings. And this stresses the fact that God provided redemption by supplying the payment. Now, the payment is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. As it says in 1 Peter 1.18, it's the precious blood of Jesus Christ. All right, in Romans 3.25-26, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Whom is a reference to Jesus Christ. God set forth as a propitiation. Oh, we have a lot of theological terms in this passage, don't we? But we need to know what they mean. All right, we have this word set forth. The the basic meaning of the word is to set something before someone. And so in some translations it gets... Uh, comes out as publicly displayed or whom God uh, set forth as a display, something like that. But the basic meaning of this word means to plan something. Over and over throughout the New Testament, When we find this word, it means to purpose something, to design something, to plan something. So in Romans 1.13, Paul says, Many times I planned to come to you. Same word translated here, set forth. They, They translated it set forth here because they didn't know what else to do with it because it, it talks about a demonstration here. And so they uh, tried to come up with a, a rather creative translation, which I think misses the point. Um, in Ephesians 1.9, talks about God's plan, which he purposed in himself. And so the word clearly has the sense of a purpose, a plan, a design. And so wherever this word is found in the New Testament, the meaning always is purpose. So God has a plan. It's a design. He thought about this in eternity past. And so the design is going to point back to eternity past, at which time God set forth that which had to be done in order to provide salvation for man who would sin. And so God has purposed Christ as a propitiation by his blood. Now, because God is holy, he is angry with those who sin, Psalm 212, Psalm 711, many other places, Isaiah 64, 5 and 6. God is holy. We just sang holy Holy, holy. What does that mean? We have to understand that God is perfect in his character. And God is perfect in his holiness. And in his holiness, God is totally without sin. He is separate from sin. 
But we have to understand that whenever God's perfect character of holiness has been violated, there must be a penalty. A law without penalty is meaningless. God has established his laws, and they are an expression of God's righteousness, his holiness. And when man at any time violates God's holiness in even the smallest amount, a penalty has to be paid. Justice demands this. Perfect justice demands a penalty be paid where there is violation of that which is holy. So we have this word propitiation. Propitiation always has this concept of satisfaction. You see, justice must be satisfied. And so God's justice demands that there be a penalty paid when there's violation of his holiness. And when the penalty is paid, then justice is satisfied. So propitiation is the doctrine or the truth that the person and death of Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of God's holiness. What Christ did on the cross met God's righteous demands so that the sinner can now be reconciled to a holy God. So we need to know what is this propitiation and what is the problem that it solves. You see, we have God is love, and we have God is just. And these things are in conflict as far as our human understanding is concerned. God is love. He wants everyone to be in heaven with him, but God is just, and he has to condemn sin, and we're all sinners, and therefore God's love can't save us. There has to be another way. But if man pays his own penalty, if man satisfies the justice of God by paying the penalty, then man is separated from God forever. But God in his grace found the way to solve the problem, and that problem is solved with propitiation. God will be satisfied if there will be an innocent, sinless substitute who will pay that penalty on behalf of the one who is guilty. So Jesus Christ, eternal God, became man. He became man without a sinful nature and without the imputation of Adam's sin and without committing any acts of personal sin. Therefore, he is acceptable to the righteousness of God. He is sinless and therefore acceptable to God. And he will pay the penalty for every sin. And this will satisfy the demands of God's justice with regard to every single member of the human race. All sins of all people of all time have been propitiated. Jesus paid, and this satisfied the demands of uh, God's justice. So the Greek word for propitiation carries the meaning of satisfaction. Now, the particular word we have in our context means the place of 
satisfaction. Always means place. Whenever you find this word, uh, it's found in Romans or Hebrews 9, 5. But if you look there, you won't see propitiation. You see something called mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat was the lid that was found on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. They made a box. It was called an ark. And on the top of that box was a lid made out of pure gold. On the lid also they had cherubs who were looking down on the lid and and, and their wings went across the top of this uh, lid. And that was called the mercy seat. It gets translated that way. It's the place where God is propitiated. So in this box, there were three items. You had the broken tables of the law, that is the Ten Commandments, uh, which of course have all been violated by man. You also had a pot of manna, and you had Aaron's rod that budded. Now these three items that were within the box, in, within the Ark of the Covenant, they all represent man's rebellion against God in some way. So that you have the Ten Commandments there, uh, that was the covenant, and uh, so the Ark of the Covenant, it's the box in which the commandments were placed. That's where it gets its name. So we have the Ten Commandments, but this represents the fact that man has violated God's law. We rebel against God's law. Even though he has revealed to us his standards, nevertheless we disobey. And so the Ten Commandments there represent our rebellion against God's law. And you have the pot of manna. Well, God provided miraculously day by day for the children of Israel out in the desert for 40 years. They had miracle food. They, all they had to do was go outside the tent door and pick it up off the ground. They didn't have to work for it. Just pick it up. There it was, perfect food, day by day. And he got tired of it. Oh, we don't like this. No, he was a very... Uh, Useful food, you could fry it, you could boil it, you could bake it, you could do a lot of different things with it. And the Bible says it was very delicious, very, very tasty. But then people say, we're tired of this. You know, I'd like a good steak once in a while. I'd like a piece of meat. I'd like something else. And they began to complain. Oh, let's go back to Egypt. They, They had cucumbers there. Onions, garlic, oh, good stuff. So brought God said, oh, you don't like my food? Okay, I'll give you something else. But they, they put the pot of manna into the Ark of the Covenant to indicate man's dissatisfaction with the provision of God. I don't like what God has given to me. God's taken care of me, but, you know, I really want something different. And we're that way today. I want a little more. I want a little better. I want something different. It's just saying, I'm not satisfied with God's provision. And then you had Aaron's rod that was put in there. This is rebellion against God's designated leadership. God had set up his own plan, and he had appointed certain people. And people say, wait a minute, I'm as good as Aaron is. I, 
I should be the high priest. Or who does he think he is? And people begin to complain about those that God has put in positions of leadership, and, and they begin to think that I, I ought to be there. I deserve more. I deserve a better place. And uh, so God, again, had to bring judgment on the uh, people out in the desert. And so this rod was put into the Ark of Covenant to uh, indicate man's rejection of God's appointed leaders. Oh, they all, all are saying, okay, we, we have rebelled against God. Now, on top of this box, you had this lid that uh, we call it the mercy seat. One day of the year, the most solemn day in all of the calendar of Israel, the high priest would come in to the most holy place. He would come in there two times, and he would come in bringing blood. First time he would come in with the blood of a bull that uh, had been sacrificed. He collected this blood in a, in a bowl, and he carried it into the most holy place, and, and he would come up to this Ark of the Covenant. And he would dip his finger into that blood, and then he would sprinkle it on the top of the mercy seat. And the picture here is that God is now satisfied with that sacrifice. And that is going to provide a basis for forgiveness of sins. Then the high priest, he would go out, he would come in later after some other rituals with more blood, this time from a goat, and this would be for the sins of the, the nation, the sins of the people. And again, he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And the picture is now that God is going to be satisfied with the death of an innocent substitute. That's the picture. It's a picture of what Christ would do on the cross. Now, Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of God's justice with regard to all sins of all people. 1 John 2, 2, he himself, talking about Christ, is the propitiation. Propitiation means what? Satisfaction. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So you can think of the worst person who has ever lived. Jesus Christ paid for their sins. He is the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, for everyone, even those who reject Christ as Savior. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. All right, now in our verse in Romans 3, we see that this propitiation is by his blood, and this is the means by which God is propitiated. Blood here speaks of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. It's Jesus Christ paying our penalty. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the propitiation comes through Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. 
And then it's through faith. This is the means by which we are redeemed and justified. It's always this way. It's putting faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now God has done this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now what this is saying is that God did not immediately condemn people in the Old Testament. Before the time of the cross, people sinned. They were born sinners. They were born spiritually dead. And yet, people were saved. People got saved in the Old Testament. They were given eternal life. They were justified. How can this be? How can God possibly save somebody if their sins have not yet been paid for? How can God do that? Well, it's because of God's forbearance. It's because of the fact that God knew what was going to come in the future and he temporarily held up on the judgment. So in the Old Testament, when a person died as an unbeliever, they were not immediately cast into the lake of fire. They will be in the future. But also those who had put faith in the promised Redeemer, how can they be saved if their sins haven't been paid for? Well, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's talking about God not bringing immediate judgment in the Old Testament. And he did that to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the great question. How can God save anyone? That's the great question. How can a God of perfect justice save anyone? You think about somebody who's guilty. Maybe he has abused children. Horrible sinner. And he comes before the judge. And the judge says, well, you shouldn't have done that. That's not good what you've been doing. But, you know, there are a lot of children out there that you haven't molested. So I'm just going to let you go. Would that be justice, or would that make us angry? That would make us angry, of course. We'd say that's not justice. Or somebody comes before the judge, and the judge says, well, you're guilty, but you know, you're my son and I love you, so I'm not going to send you to jail. Would that be justice? That would not, and that would make us angry, and, it ha- and that happens, and, and we don't like that, and rightfully so. Well, understand this, we're all sinners. How can God save anybody? Because his justice demands payment for any sin, for every sin. Justice demands payment. So how can God justify anyone, declare anyone to be righteous, and maintain his own justice? You see, if you have a judge who lets the criminal go free, 
You say, that judge is not just. So how can God save anybody? The answer is in propitiation. God has been satisfied by the death of his son who paid the penalty. He paid the price to set us free. This satisfies the justice of the Father. So this is God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, his plan of justification. It's all as a gift. It's all by grace, and we receive it simply by faith. This is, this is wonderful. So I hope that you will meditate on these verses. I challenged you last week to memorize them. I don't know if any did. But think on these things. This is the most tremendous passage in all the New Testament, opening up to us this wonderful doctrine of salvation. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, I give thanks to you that you are a God of grace. You have not dealt with us according to our sins. You've not rewarded us according to our iniquity. You sent your Son. Because you loved us, you sent your Son to die in our place, to satisfy the demands of your perfect justice. So we thank you for Jesus who is the satisfaction for all of our sins, the one who has paid the penalty, the price. I pray that we might truly understand these things and come to appreciate just how wonderful is this salvation that's given to us purely as a gift. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you're going to cause these things to ring in our ears, come into our thinking, that we might just praise the Savior, that we'll praise you for all that you have done through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.